Old Testament reading today is Psalm 2. We sang this earlier. It's so important for the sermon text that we're singing it and reading it. Um, And we'll talk about why a little bit later. But I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 7. Okay. Listen carefully. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's turn now to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. When Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, he had had a long time to think about what his first words were going to be when he uh, stepped onto the lunar surface. Um, ironically, I, I think he kind of botched it when the time came a little bit. He meant to say that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. It came out one small step for man. Um, but still, people got the idea, and we can you know, go easy on him. He had a lot, of, a lot on his mind at that particular moment, I think. Um, and that was actually still a pretty eloquent thing to say. People remember it forever. The point, though, is that uh, first words make a big impact. Uh, People will sometimes give the advice, you only have one chance to make a first impression. 
my, my piano teacher growing up used to tell me, listen, you know, mistakes are part of making music. You're going to make mistakes when you practice. You're going to make mistakes even when you perform. And, and that's okay. But there's one note you should never get wrong. You should never make an, a mistake. You never have an excuse for missing the first note. And why is that? It's because you have unlimited time to prepare for it, to get ready, to think about what you're going to say musically with that first sound that you create. And so if you, if you miss the first note, it shows that you weren't mentally prepared is the point. In other words, take your time, think about it, get set with your body and your mind, and then you begin. So imagine this, if you were going to need to introduce yourself in writing to a group of people that you had never met before, but you were hoping to meet them soon, and you wanted to uh, teach them something you thought was very, very important, and you also wanted to reassure them at the same time why they should think that you have anything worthwhile to say to them. I think you'd think very carefully about your first words. And you would hope that the people reading your letter would also think very carefully about those first words and that they would sense that weight of careful thought, that weight of meaning, the way that you were trying to get across to them your heart and soul, your, your sense of what is really important. And so today we're sort of uh, standing together at the edge of the cliff of the Book of Romans. And as we get ready to step off of it together, I want to invite all of us to listen very carefully to these first words of the Apostle Paul, where he gives to us a piece of his heart and soul what he thought was the most important message in the world. And so let's look at these verses in three parts. First will be the office Paul held. Second will be the message Paul carried. And finally will be the Christ Paul proclaimed. So the office Paul held, the message Paul carried, and the Christ Paul proclaimed. All right, first that office Paul held. Because we just wrapped up a, a whole sermon series on the book of Acts uh, earlier this year, I don't think I need to give you an awful lot of biographical information about the Apostle Paul. You're pretty familiar with his life. Um, it may help to tell you, though, and we'll talk about this more at other times, um, that this particular letter was written near the end of what we call the third missionary journey of Paul. Uh, in the time frame of Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 says that after the riot, you may remember happening in Ephesus um, back in chapter 19, Paul left Ephesus and he went uh, west, first to Macedonia, and visited the churches there. And when he had gone through those regions, it says, and he had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. So Paul probably wrote the book of Romans during that three-month stay in Greece, very likely he was staying in Corinth in particular at the time. And 
Um, after those three months, he had to leave because of uh, yet another plot against his life. And so that's when he begins his return journey towards Jerusalem. Um, so this is written pretty late in Paul's ministry, a very short time before his arrest when he gets back to Jerusalem. And that arrest led eventually to Paul, to Paul being shipped off as a prisoner to Rome, right? But something important to remember is that before that time, before Paul came to Rome as a prisoner, he had never been to Rome before. He did not plant the church in Rome. Um, and that's something unique about Romans. All of his other letters to the various churches are written to churches that he already knew that he had, had uh, that he either planted or at least had helped to lead in some foundational way in person. He was writing based on that prior relationship. Romans is unique because Paul is writing to this group of people, many of whom, most of whom he had never met, uh, living in a place he had never been to before. And so now he's introducing himself and he's thinking, okay, so who, who am I? Who do I want these, how do I want these people to understand uh, who I am and what my office is? What do these people need to know about me? So isn't it striking that the first word out of Paul's mouth after his own name is the word servant. Remember what Jesus said, rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, those who, their great ones exercise authority over them, but it must not be so among you. The Lord Jesus told his disciples, I am among you as one who serves. Reminds me of John the Baptist as well. When he said, you know, someone else is coming after me, the one whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to untie or sandal strap. So Paul is not here in this letter to claim a personal authority of his own that belongs to him. He's not here to get these Roman Christians to follow him, the cult of Paul. He's, he's not seeking here to exert that kind of power of personality. Uh, or to become for the Romans a kind of celebrity or like a trendsetter who's going to change their lives and fix all their problems because he, Paul, has all the answers. This is Paul, a servant of somebody else. Remember in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he told that church, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, is central to Paul's identity, central to his kind of self-conception, how he viewed himself. He was, first and foremost, a servant of Christ Jesus. Then he keeps going and he gets more specific. What kind of servant? He's a specific kind of servant of Christ Jesus. Called, he says, called to be an apostle. Apostle comes from the Greek word for sent. He's sent by Christ to be particularly an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. That great foundational fact of history that Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. Paul says he is called to be a sent one. Called and sent. Both of those really reinforce that idea that he's a servant, right? That he's... Um, 
under the authority of Christ, that everything he does is directed by Christ, for Christ's sake. It's not self-directed, it's not for his own sake. Now, on the one hand, that's an expression of humility, right? It's self-effacing. What I'm about to tell you is not about me, it's not self-promotion, it is Christ-promotion. There's another side to that coin, though, because Paul is at the same time giving the Roman Christians the ultimate reason to listen to what he has to say. Not because Paul himself is so special as an individual, but because he has been called and sent by Christ Jesus. He's a servant, a messenger from the Lord. He's bearing a message that is not his own. It's Christ's, and that's why they need to listen to it. And we can just stop here for a second, because there are a few, things, few lessons I think we can glean already just from the way Paul introduces himself here. Uh, we need to be careful because, of course, Paul is unique. We're not supposed to put ourselves in his shoes as an apostle. Um, the office of apostle was um, unique. It was foundational in that first generation of the church. And although you and I are called by Christ through the gospel, we are also sent by Christ through the Great Commission. We are not apostles. That apostolic foundation has been laid once and for all. Now we stand upon it as we uh, build upon the scriptures that contain the apostolic witness, the apostles' testimony. Okay, so that, that caveat firmly in place. I want to go on to ask you this more generally about your Christian life. Your identity, your self-conception, the way you answer the question, who am I? I wonder for you, does it start with the word servant? Does it start with the word servant, a servant of Christ Jesus? And of course, again, that was, that was true in a special, unique way for Paul. But in a broader sense, it's an identity that all of God's people share. That first and foremost, we are servants of someone else. I am not my own. I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got to keep reminding ourselves. The world does not revolve around me. I am not the center of the universe. I'm living for something more than my personal happiness. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And I'm a servant Christ has called to himself and then has sent out on a mission. I've been called into the reality of the gospel message. And now I am carrying that message to other people who also need to hear it. We are servants called and sent. That's what the apostles were. That's what Paul was uniquely but again, there's an analogy here, and it's worth asking this question about first words. Does this take first place in the way I view myself, that I am a servant called and sent by Christ Jesus, my Lord? All right. Now, as Paul goes on, he continues to get more specific here. Called to be an apostle, and we can drill down further into what that involves. What does it mean to be an apostle? Well, it involves being set apart, Paul says, for the gospel of God. Paul's ministry is wrapped up, apparently, in a message. A message. 
Gospel means good news. Good news. Paul is saying, I've been set apart, I've been separated, I've been devoted to this news. News about something that has happened. A message that people need to hear about that happening in history. It's so important that people hear that message. So important that Christ has called me to devote myself to it, to devote myself to that message, to devote myself to making it known. He set me apart for that one burning purpose in life. People will try to say, well, you know, Christianity is not really a doctrine. It's a life. As nonsense is not true. See, Christianity is a doctrine, a teaching, a message. It's news that leads to a new way of life. It's not wrong to say that Christianity is a life, but it's a life that flows out of a doctrine, out of a teaching, out of a message. And if you don't have that doctrine, if you don't have that teaching, if you don't have that message, that news, then you're never going to get the life that flows from it. You might get a, a cheap substitute, an imitation, but that has the, the heart missing, the beating heart left out. Christianity produces strong feelings in Christians, rightly so. But Christianity is not fundamentally a feeling. Christianity produces certain kinds of actions by Christians, but Christianity is not fundamentally an action, not our action anyway. It is fundamentally a message about God's action, about something God has done for us in Christ. And if you don't have that message, then you don't have Christianity at all. So it seems pretty important to find out what that news is. What is the content of this message that Paul has been set apart for? Really, that's what the whole book of Romans is about. We get a preview here. This is kind of like an overture where where the the big themes of the letter start to appear. Um, And the first thing that we learn about this gospel is that it is not brand new, kind of coming out of the blue um, without warning or precedent in earlier times. Now, in one sense... It is a very, very old message, the oldest message. This gospel Paul carries is one that God promised beforehand, says through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, it's not something fundamentally different from the message of the Old Testament. It is fundamentally connected. It is of a piece, of one piece with that Old Testament revelation. It's that one plan of God that he's been working, that he designed in eternity past, and that he's been working out ever since the Garden of Eden. So the gospel, in other words, is is not like this this slick new religious trend that's just come along, um, and and Paul is kind of peddling it as the, the latest thing that nobody's ever heard of before. Get on board with it. No, the gospel Paul carries is the culmination of the entire history of the world. 
throughout his letters, Paul often will speak of a, a mystery. It's a term he loves to use for it. A mystery that was kept hidden for long ages, but now has been revealed. What was long predicted and foreshadowed and pictured in various ways has now actually happened. It has now come to life. The bud has blossomed. The cloud has burst. This connection with the Old Testament is especially significant because Paul is writing to a church with an awful lot of Gentiles in it. There are Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. And in fact, that relationship between Jews and Gentiles is going to be a major theme in this book, as we'll see. Uh, Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And that was his special task as an apostle. He kind of majored on ministry to Gentile Christians. And so you might think that when he talked to Gentiles, he might be inclined to sort of downplay the Old Testament, right? When I'm talking to Jews, of course, then that I'll, talk to, I'll talk to them about the Old Testament because they know it, they understand it. But, you know, Gentiles, well, I don't really need to bring that up because they, they don't have that background. No, that's not how Paul conducted his ministry. When Paul proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles, he proclaims the Old Testament right along with it because... You can't understand what Christ has done properly without that older revelation. The Old Testament is the prequel. The Old Testament is the context. It's the foundation. It's what explains the need. It's what expresses the hope and the longing. It's what sets the the, the vocabulary and the symbols and the images. It's what tells about the God who is offering this salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike. It tells us what he's done in the past of which this new work in Christ is the echo and the fulfillment. And so to Gentiles, Paul can say, yes, you need to know, to learn, and to love the Old Testament. But on the other hand, he can also say to everybody, make sure you realize what the Old Testament is about. What is the subject matter of the Old Testament? And Paul's point here is that that Old Testament is all, from start to finish, about Jesus. That's something Jews and Gentiles both need to hear, right? This is the gospel of God, which is that gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. What is the Old Testament about? It is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that phrase, concerning his son, is what leads to the last two verses where we're ending up today, which is three and four. What follows that phrase is a a very dense, very rich, pithy summary of the life and work of Jesus. It's just turned the spotlight upon Christ himself. And now he's going to give in very short form, what do you need to know about the life and work of Christ? We've looked at the office Paul held, the gospel Paul carried. This now, verse 3 and 4, is the Christ Paul proclaimed. Who is he? His son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead.
There's a world of meaning in those two verses. Perhaps you might think we're just scratching the surface of them for the time we have left. We'll give it a try. It's a little uh, tricky here, first of all. A little tricky to unpack what Paul means by contrasting the phrase according to the flesh, the phrase according to the spirit of holiness. What does he mean by contrasting the flesh and the spirit when it comes to the work of Christ? Many people reading this have assumed that Paul is describing what we call the two natures of Christ, his divinity and his humanity. He's saying Jesus is fully God and fully man. Son of David, that's fully man. Son of God, fully God. And Paul did believe that about the two natures of Christ. It's clear from many other places in his letters. But I'm very much inclined to agree with um, other interpreters who, who say, yeah, but that's not what he's talking about here in these verses. I'm convinced that in verses 3 and 4, Paul has much more in mind what we call the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. His suffering and his glory. I think this is following a train of thought very much like the one you find in Philippians chapter 2. You find Jesus humbling himself by becoming man, but then after his suffering and death, he receives that name that's above every name and his resurrection glory. So earlier, we both sang and read from Psalm 2, right? And in Psalm 2, God says, in the short term to David, but it's very clear, it's pointing to something much bigger than David himself. God says to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. It's, it's a public declaration. This person is God's anointed, special, authorized, glorious king on the throne that God has appointed. Now, that was true of David only in a very pale, reflected kind of way, reflected back in time. But who David was on the king as God's special anointed one was a picture looking forward to what the son of David would one day become. And that verse, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is a preview in particular of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God publicly declared and displayed for all people everywhere to see that God the Father approved of the work that Jesus had done, that now he was bestowing upon him the reward of resurrection glory, at the end of his work of atonement. Now, that is not to say that Jesus only then became the Son of God. That he wasn't the Son of God before he rose from the dead. Of course he was. He, was, he's, he, has, he is the Son of God eternally, right? God the Son. But you see, in, in the resurrection, Jesus was declared in a new, fresh, and unprecedented way to be 
the Son of God in power. And it helps if you kind of read hyphens in between the words there, Son of God in power. Imagine kind of hyphens in there. What we're seeing is that this, this, this one who has always been God's Son, by nature, God the Son, he became man by taking on David's flesh and blood, right? In the bloodline of David. He became the son of David. He entered David's family as a man. And as a man, as the God-man, Jesus Christ achieved something much greater than David ever achieved in his kingship. Right? David never lived and died for sinners. David never faced down the devil as the second Adam. David never rendered perfect obedience to the law of God and then suffered in his people's place. Those are the things that only the son of David could do. And as a result of all that he achieved, what was happening in his resurrection was not merely that Jesus was coming to life again, as though his body rested in the grave, that he had stopped breathing and then he began breathing again, and his mode of life after the resurrection was just like his life before. No, the Bible is very clear. You can see it even in the the difference in the resurrection body of Jesus and its glory and his ascension into heaven. That in his resurrection, Jesus was entering into a whole new kind of life, a new quality of life, a new mode of life, resurrection life. This life specially empowered by the Holy Spirit. What Paul describes in other places as the new creation. Okay, so when, when Paul talks about flesh versus spirit in his letters, look at this as a survey of all Paul's letters. What you, what you will notice, when he, when he talks about flesh versus spirit, he's, he's not talking about uh, human versus divine, certainly, in, in terms of human versus divine nature. He's not talking about physical versus not physical, as in body and soul. What he's talking about much more often is this flesh-spirit distinction. You should think of spirit with a capital S, the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the difference between this creation and the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. This age and the age to come. This is a big part of the grand scheme of the Apostle Paul's thinking as it plays out in all of his letters. You can see this especially in 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, and we'll explore all of these at other times. And as you think about that new creation, that age to come, those new heavens and new earth, do you know what that new creation, that age to come is marked by? Time after time, it is marked by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Or as he describes it here, the spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness who is specially at work in his most mighty act of all in the work of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that same spirit of holiness is at work today also. He is at work now in the people of Christ, among us after Pentecost, right? Giving to us as the people of Christ that inward spiritual resurrection life that we experience now through faith in Jesus, along with the hope of a much fuller experience of that resurrection life, body and soul, in the future. Okay, now I'm just going to admit, I know I've just thrown a lot at you, drawn from wide range of Paul's teachings in many of his letters. Some of it may sound a little bit difficult, a little bit unfamiliar, even a little bit counterintuitive, um, and that's okay. Uh, be encouraged that we're going to come back to many of these themes again in Romans. Um, be happy to talk to you about 
this in more detail than we have time for now at another time. Um, remember, though, this is, this is just the overture. All of these ideas are being concentrated, boiled down, like that orange juice concentrate in the refrigerator, in the, in the freezer. It's, just, it's all packed in there, and we're going to need to pour some water in to make it drinkable uh, for us as we unpack this over time. But as the overture, as the concentrate, these verses give us some very important insights into how to read this book. And here I hope things will become a little bit simpler, more straightforward for you, because these are very important points to take into the rest of our exploration of Romans. First of all, these opening verses caution us against reading Romans as a book of supposedly, what I call pure theology. Um, although what I'm, just, what I'm using that term for is not really pure theology at all. But this idea of theology kind of disconnected from history, sort of floating above it, just in the ether somewhere, in our, just in a thought bubble. You may have uh, heard, oh, we're going to have a new sermon series on Romans. I bet we're going to get into some great theology now, some great doctrine. And yes, we are. Romans is full of great theology, great doctrine, no doubt about it. But if we don't want to take our first steps in Romans in a very wrong direction, we've got to remember that the theology, the doctrine of Paul, as of the whole Bible, is about history. It is rooted in history and in a person, a particular character in that history. The doctrine flows out of that history and is centered on that person. And this is one of the things that separates the theology of the Bible from mere philosophy. It's not this purely abstract mental exercise. Again, the theology of the Bible is not, does not all happen just up in a thought bubble somewhere. It is about what God has done. And that he's done it, and this is the second thing these four verses focus on, that he's done it supremely in the saving acts of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection for sinners. And in his coming return. So everybody knows that the book of Romans says a lot about, say, uh, justification. right? Justification, huge theme, justification by faith alone. Very important to the church, very important to the Apostle Paul in this book. We're going to camp out there on that particular doctrine repeatedly in coming weeks. But I want you to get this from verse 1, uh, from week 1, I mean. You to understand that what Paul is saying about justification, to get that properly, to understand it properly, you first have to understand what he's telling you about Jesus. You can't understand justification properly without understanding Jesus crucified and resurrected, humiliated and exalted, the eternal Son of God who became the Son of David and then was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, the Spirit-anointed King of the new creation. It is that Christ that you have to know and love and understand if you want to get what Paul's going to say about justification, about sanctification, about glorification, even predestination, all the other Asian theology words that are addressed in this book, are all going to make a lot more sense. So we're going to see them properly if we see them through the lens of Christ and his work. So yeah, first words, very important. 
We've just taken one small step into the book of Romans. And uh, it might have felt like a giant leap into the deep end of Paul's thinking about the gospel. I encourage you to come on in because the water water is fine. It's life-giving, soul-nourishing, and I'm excited to swim in it together for a while while we were in this book, and I hope that you are too. Thank the Lord for this office that Paul held, for this message Paul proclaimed, and for uh, the message Paul carried, and for this Christ that Paul proclaimed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your providence and calling and sending the Apostle Paul to carry this message about the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, now declared to be the son of God in power, risen from the dead, the spirit-anointed king of the universe, who is with us now, the power of that same spirit of holiness, and who is coming again. Our great God, we ask that you would please fill our hearts with the glory and the joy of this message, this news that is at the heart of our faith. We pray that our life as Christians, our love for you would flow from our faith in this news. Our assurance that it is true and that it is a living reality for us now as we live under the authority of King Jesus, our Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen.